Scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Hello, everyone. My name is Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. I am joined by my friends and colleagues, Munim Suri. Hello, Munim. Hello. And Svinovic. Hi, great to be here. Thank you, friends. And uh, we have spoken in the past in Minding Scripture about a number of important figures who appear both in the Bible and the Quran. I think we did Adam right towards the beginning, which was appropriate. But there's a major figure that we've missed, and we are going to make up for that today, um, and that is Noah. Many of our listeners will know the story of Noah's Ark. Uh, we are, Notre Dame is in the uh, the state of Indiana, and one state to the south in Kentucky, there's actually a replica of Noah's Ark, so you can check it out there. Uh, we've, If you go to the internet, you can find many reports of people who have discovered Noah's Ark in Turkey and different places. Um, but we're going to speak about Noah as he appears in the Bible, in the Quran. Um, so we'll be speaking about Genesis, and not only about the flood, but also about uh, the covenant in Genesis 9 in particular, and also about the Quran, and we'll notice that there are some important differences. And we will resolve all of the problems, give all of the answers and all of the solutions that you need to know about <laughs> Noah. I mean, one thing, uh, maybe a way to begin, friends, is uh, Noah, people know about Noah oftentimes from children's books, at least illustrated um, Bible uh, Bibles for children. I think, Muni, maybe you don't have illustrated Qurans with Noah. I don't think so, but you, you will find in the bookstore, you know, uh, uh, a picture book um, with animals marching to a dog. Okay, okay. so also in the Islamic tradition for children. Um, so uh, we're going to complicate things from the children's book version of Noah. Sri, I thought we would just start um, at the beginning of uh, the Noah story, which brings us to Genesis 6. Uh, it's right. an interesting chapter mm -hmm. because before it even gets to Noah, we have the passage about the Nephilim, and maybe you could um, uh, explain that word for us. Uh, could you just generally set the biblical Noah story for us in context? Uh, sure. So, uh, yeah, the Noah story is coming after, um, the, of course, the story of the creation of the world and the uh, what's known as the uh, as the fall story, uh, the sin of uh, of Adam and Eve, um, and uh, the expulsion from the garden, Cain and Abel, and then you have a, a long genealogy, the begats, right. uh, that get us from the children of Adam all the way across ten generations to Noah, uh, and then uh, the scene is set by this. Uh, by this odd story, as you said at the beginning of uh, of chapter six, that describes um, a kind of uh, global turn to wickedness. Uh, of course, this is not the first instance of sin. We have that already with Adam and Eve, and then uh, with Cain killing Abel. Uh, but here uh, we have uh, the uh, all the inhabitants of the world, uh, with the exception of Noah and his family, turn to wickedness, and it's associated. Uh, in the beginning of chapter six, with as you said, these nephilim, um, 
perhaps associated with the Hebrew root nafal, meaning fall, um, and hence uh, some notion of a, uh, of fallen angels. Uh, you have, uh, I suppose I can read the beginning of chapter 6, when people began to multiply on the face of the ground, um, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. And then the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. So it's this mysterious story of the... Um, uh, of this uh, relationship, relationships between the sons of God uh, and the daughters of men. Right. Uh, it seems clear, this is one instance, perhaps the clearest instance, um, where uh, we see how the Bible belongs to a, a larger world of stories uh, and traditions, not all of which it tells us, some of which it only alludes to. Uh, because we, we have we, see, we seem to have here some larger story about uh, angels and human beings, these individuals known as Nephilim, and the Bible here is very elusive. Uh, it seems almost not to want to tell us uh, the full story, um, but, uh, but here uh, you have a kind of evidence from the biblical text itself, as it were, um, of a larger world of narratives and myths and legends um, that uh, that the Bible is relating to, uh, knows of, but doesn't always choose to kind of reveal in full. Right. And um, there's this really striking verse, verse 6 there, which speaks of God. I mean, in, in the Revised Standard Version, I don't know if it's the best translation, reads, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That is like really serious. Um, right, it, right. And yeah, I, I and suppose yeah, it could just be a way of introducing the story of destruction of the flood, but uh, theologically it's yeah, difficult. Uh, right, this, this expression of, um, of regret um, uh, is, uh, is pretty striking if we're coming, uh, coming to the biblical text from a kind of... Um, uh, Sort of Aristotelian uh, kind of notion of a of a of a distant um, God, uh, and here we have a very uh, anthropomorphic God, mm -hmm. not a God who can experience human emotions. But uh, I mean, to some extent, it's uh, you know it's mo it's more characteristic of the of the kind of quasi mythological depictions of God that you find in the first eleven chapters of the book of Genesis, but to some extent it's really kind of characteristic of, uh, of the depiction of God in, uh, in the Bible in general, um, where um, uh, God, um, um, God can, uh, can look quite human. Of course, you also have in the Bible declarations um, uh, of God's uh, commitment to a specific re rejection of the idea of God sorry or regretting Balaam, uh, the prophet Bilam, or Balaam uh, famously uh, insists that God is not like human beings, is not sorry, or does not regret. Uh, in the narratives, right, inevitably narratives humanize. Uh, but, uh, but I think the Bible, in the Bible especially, 
there is uh, an embrace um, of uh, of the way in which God appears uh, kind of inevitably insofar as he's interacting with human beings, taking on that sort of human-like coloring. Right. Muni, maybe we turn to the Quran before we go any further with Genesis to, to get the perspective of of the Quran. Um, it's, it's a bit of a different exercise because the Quranic passages on Noah are spread out in a number of different chapters yes. or according to the Arabic word surahs. Um, Quran surah or chapter 7 verse 59 reads, um, We sent Noah to his people. He said, O my people, worship God. You have no other God other than him. I fear for you the punishment of a tremendous day. Um, before asking anything more specific, could you maybe put that in context in terms of the Quran's larger message about the relationship between God and humanity? Yeah, sure. Yes, I, I think the the background to the story of Noah in the Quran is somehow similar to that of the Bible, namely the steady escalation of mistreatment and disbelief that Noah endured from you know his surrounding uh, uh, communities. So the theme of punishment is quite central to to uh, to, to the Quranic stories of of prophets. Mm-hmm. So here you see in chapter seven, verse fifty nine. The Quran began with "We sent Noah to his people," so it seemed to me that you know that the Quran proceed in similar order to that of the Bible, that Noah warned his people, and they don't listen to him, and furthermore, they also mock Noah as he built his ark, and the same people, you know, uh, perish in the flood. So uh, Although, can I jump in? Sure. There? Yes. Sorry to interrupt. And maybe Svi, you have thoughts on this too, because uh, yeah, sure. so um, just on that that point about the um, the warning, uh, you know, there in in Genesis, my understanding is that Noah doesn't actually speak or to his people at all, let alone warn them. Mm-hmm. And so, Svi, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or, or can elaborate. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Well, um, in, in the um, the flood story in the Bible has parallels in the larger ancient Near Eastern world, and maybe we'll get to that. Um, and in in some of those versions, the Noah-like figure not, not only doesn't warn people, but almost to a certain extent um, willfully misleads them about the uh, the flood that is to come. But, right, but certainly in the biblical text itself, uh, there is no indication of Noah warning others. Uh, the Bible, I mean, rabbinic readers, Jewish readers do uh, kind of want to see Noah as having this function. They note, for example, that um, uh, that, um, that this, this process, or at least it's possible uh, to read chapter 6 so that the process of building the ark takes a very long time. Uh, and the rabbinic readers take that to be uh, God's way, uh, or no, take Noah to be in this way, warning people of the impending flood. People see him building this ark, uh, and he tells them about it, uh, and this is their opportunity to repent. Um, and there are other indicators, uh, other aspects of the text that can be read and that are read uh, by their Jewish readers so as to produce a Noah who warns others and gives them an opportunity to repent. Uh, so I think um, the 
the Jewish reception of this story kind of shares with the version of the story that you find in the Quran. It's definitely this, the case in the Christian reception too. Right, Already, this desire to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. Yeah, exactly. The desire to see Noah as as a preacher, as a warner. Already in Second Peter, Second mm-hmm. Peter speaks of Noah as a preacher of righteousness. So he's not just right. righteous, mm-hmm. which I think he gets that characteristic mm-hmm. in Genesis, but he's a preacher. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, in, in the in the Quranic context, you know, the the Noah story is not just about uh, about punishment. Mm-hmm. It is al- also about mercy, right? So, in the sense that, you know, the story is not not only about those who are drawn, but also those who are safe. So scholars often, you know, uh, prefer one over the other, but I think it is also important to emphasize that, you know, that the, the, the Quranic story of Noah is intended to illustrate how to escape punishment, but also how to attain salvation. I think that's really important. I think it's a major difference. I, I don't know, Svi, if you agree with this, but to me it's a major difference of the two Noah accounts. That in meaning, the Quran, can we just clarify that meaning that in the that in the Quran's account there is more of an emphasis on salvation, or where do you see the difference? Yes, that uh, the prophet is sent as a mercy uh, to mm. warn people of impending punishment, and of course, it's also what's really going on is a warning being communicated to Muhammad's own people yes. um, through the story of Noah, and so there's all this theological action that's sort of unfolding. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't see that taking place in Genesis. Not in the biblical narrative, no. But as, as we said, right, I mean, I think in, in the reception of it where, um, yeah, uh, Noah does become to some extent assimilated into the standard model of the prophet, you know, of Jonah uh, warning the people of Nineveh uh, in 40 days, the, the city of Nineveh will be overturned. And so, yeah, Noah does become assimilated to it. But in the biblical text itself, yes, I think that's, uh, uh, that's quite right. We don't, we don't in any way really have a, uh, a Noah who is... Uh, warning uh, as an act of divine mercy. Hmm. William, did you have more thoughts before I go on? I, I have a very different sort of question coming up, so we, I didn't want to... can follow up. Yeah, so, okay, here's a very different sort of question. Um, I, 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 it sort of bridges something about ancient Near East and something about the Quran. I, I know that in, there are Islamic debates in the traditional literature, maybe in contemporary thought as well, about whether the flood was local or universal. So I wanted to just ask both of you to speak about that, that question. Is this a universal flood or a local flood? Well, in, well in I the, suppose maybe in the Bible, uh, I mean, the, the, um, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament certainly takes it to be a, a, a pretty universal flood. I mean, we have a, uh, it, this is definitely chapter two, to, as it were, not literally chapter two, uh, but chapter two of the story of creation, uh, a kind of a do-over, mm-hmm. uh, and Noah is the one and only survivor. It becomes very important theologically, certainly, uh, in the continuation uh, of the tradition that all human beings are descendants of Noah, uh, and uh, and then the flood disturbs the workings of nature altogether, and then God, as we'll perhaps get to in more detail later, kind of makes a commitment to the preservations of nature as such. So it's a, it's a, a cosmological event with the deeps that had been uh, kind of constrained, the deep, uh, uh, the waters of chaos that had been constrained in Genesis 1 uh, opening up again. And so, the, yeah, it's very much a cosmic event in the, uh, in the Bible. So, and is this, before we get to Quran, is this a, an original move? 
by the biblical authors because, uh, well, could you set it in context with the Gilgamesh story? Let me just get right to Gilgamesh. Um, maybe, you know, maybe there are other sure. ancient stories. Uh, but there, you hear sometimes there there are all of these echoes of some real Mesopotamian flood that produced different versions of a flood epic or something. Could you uh, well, right. well, I mean, of course, in terms of the, uh, you know, what, what might have inspired this, I mean, to the extent that uh, that there is, um, uh, that there is, as it were, a, a historical background uh, to this, uh, one can easily imagine a, a kind of a, a, a relatively local uh, catastrophic flood um, in the in the Near East, uh, in the vicinity of the Near East, uh, kind of inspiring uh, this sort of more um, theological um, version, um, and yeah, perhaps that does lie um, uh, explain in part the, uh, the the prevalence of the motif around the East, though to some extent it's simply a matter of literary borrowing. Um, but we do, yeah, we do as as, as we mentioned um, before have these other flood stories uh, around a figure of Utanapishtim in the Gilgamesh narrative or I'm glad Atrahasis. you said that and I didn't have to sorry keep going <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or Atrahasis yeah in another version of it um, and so um, uh, yeah but but it's um, I suppose right it's very very uh, kind of difficult to and I, I, I'm not kind of up on the uh, uh, on the uh, on all of the kind of scholarship connected to the historical background of this, um, uh, but uh, but there is uh, there are certainly or is evidence anyhow of local catastrophic floods. Uh, the um, but but um, but of course in this theological retelling as we have it in the Bible, it's undoubtedly taken to be uh, a universal and uh, even a cosmic event. Right, right. Even even beyond the Mesopotamian context, right, the flood stories can be found in, in many ancient cultures. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in India, Vedic scriptures, we find uh, tsunami stories which share remarkable similarities. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think the common thread of all these stories include, you know, the water either flowing, falling, falling down or rising up and the destruction of society, community, mm. as well as information about few people who were saved. So they share, they share remarkable similarities of all right. these flood stories. I don't want to pass over before we get to the Quran, sure. Quranic debate. Maybe I'm making too much of it, but there, there is a question there, right, for the Quran, whether yeah. it's local or universal. Right. The, the, the Quran, I mean, from the Quranic description, I think it's difficult to, to say whether it is local uh, flood or, or, or global because the Quran does not provide detailed description about the flood itself. Unlike the Bible, you know, in which, you know, the, the flood is described in such detail. Uh, the rain went on for 40 days, 40 nights, and Noah, you know, looked, opened the windows um, to uh, to see the, the, the level of waters. So the Quran uh, treat this uh, flood story in such brevity. So I think it's, it's but yeah, there are scholars who contend that the flood itself was uh, was global. Perhaps they were inspired by the Bible, I guess, uh, since the Bible uh, described that the flood destroyed everything under the heaven, um, all living thing. Uh, here in, in, in the Quran, uh, the Quran simply says that we drown those who reject our revelation, meaning that only those who reject prophetic message they were 
they were drawn. Uh, but what makes things complicated, I guess, in the same passage, the Quran says that we save him and those with him in the ark, meaning all other people were, were destroyed. Mm. So I think it's, it's, it's quite difficult, you know, looking at the Quran description of the flood, whether it is global or, or, um, or local. What I found interesting is that the Quran... Say- yes. Oh, sorry. Is it fair to say, Munim, then that uh, that the, the flood doesn't occupy a particularly privileged or distinctive role uh, in world history for the Quran? It's simply one, an, another instance of divine punishment for those who don't uh, don't heed God. I guess so. I think that's 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 uh, you know a, a, a nice description about the, the 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 punishment story in the Quran, and it doesn't mention you know how many people were saved. Unlike the Bible, the Bible I think is very explicit, right? Mm-hmm. It mentioned like eight people eight, who were exactly. saved. Yes. Uh, the Quran, the Quran does not mention the number of people who were saved. You know, on the ark. There's also the passage at the end of the chapter of the Quran named after Noah. Yeah. Surah seventy one. Yes. Where Noah prays to God and says, "Do not leave any of the." I'm just paraphrasing, but do sure. not leave any of the unbelievers on the earth, because they mm. will cause trouble. Right. Um, which I think can be cited as an argument for a universal flood. But I also agree with with you, Munim, that, and it was your suggestion, Svi, that there's there's something uh, different at stake for the Noah story. Mm-hmm. It's one in a series of stories of divine punishment. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas in in Genesis, and maybe we can we can um, turn to that in just a bit. But it it is this new beginning, uh, as you put it. I think you put it better than that, but something like that. Um, I wanted to sort of pick up on the theological reading, just because we, for people who think theologically about these things, um, the cosmic flood is a problem. I, I think there are problems even scientifically with it, but I haven't really thought about that. Is that right? Does either of you know that there's not enough water or something on Earth to cover the whole? <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I think there are scientific problems with the notion of a universal yeah, flood. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, um, and I think there's may not be archaeological evidence for a universal flood. And those sort of things could prompt us to reading the story maybe more symbolically, metaphorically. So it could, could I, I'm not sure in the Islamic tradition there may be different dynamics at stake, but in the Jewish tradition, Svi, uh, what sort of resources are there for producing different theological readings of the text? Right, that's a good, uh, it's a great question, really. I mean, it's, it's um, I suppose, uh, you know, the, the question could be asked uh, you know, in a, in a similar way of the, of the Garden of Eden story, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to what extent um, are we supposed to be construing, in particular, these uh, early stories of human beings um, uh, as, as, as in any way literal? And of course, opinions on this uh, on this vary in the tradition, but um, and uh, the debates don't aren't confined to Genesis one through eleven, kind of the pre-Abrahamic stories, uh, but extend further also. Um, but uh, I suppose, uh, right? I I, I, I myself uh, kind of adhere to uh, to that that strand in the uh, in, in the tradition that uh, doesn't necessarily press too hard on the uh, on the question of of history and sees 
the Bible uh, in this narrative, in the uh, in the earlier narratives of Genesis, even Genesis, even to some extent in subsequent narratives, uh, as fundamentally uh, wanting to make uh, claims about God as creator, God as um, uh, as, um, as 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 uh, the press providential as rewarding punishment and as rewarding uh, righteousness mm-hmm. and punishing wickedness uh, and uh, and in general kind of mapping out as it were the whole structure of creation so for example a pretty fundamental change that occurs in the bible uh, between uh, the creation story and the flood story is that whereas uh, uh, adam is given vegetation to eat uh, following the flood story, human beings, uh, Noah and his descendants, are given animals to eat as well. And so there's a kind of attempt to to map here uh, the structure of creation generally, perhaps an ideal and a, and a second best. Um, but uh, yeah, I suppose uh, that that's where I see the kind mm-hmm. of um, uh, emphasis. Um, of the of the biblical text here, and not so much in uh, in any uh, historical claims it might be making, but in its um, claims about the relationship of God to the world, the relationship of human beings to animals, uh, nature, the very idea of nature. Um, right, what you have here, I mean, pretty strikingly uh, from that perspective, is you know in the aftermath of this flood story, um, the the birth of of nature in a certain sense in God's commitment not to disturb, at least in a certain fundamental way, the um, the processing, the, 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 the procession of the seasons. God commits himself at the end of chapter 8, as long as yes. the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, which is to a certain extent, interestingly, a certain limitation, self-limitation on divine providence in the sense that he's not going to... Um, is not going to uh, intervene to this radical degree, uh, and so if we see kind of the idea of nature or science as a as a limitation on divine providence because it it in- indicates a certain regularity, uh, then that's what we have emerging here. So uh, that's how I, I suppose how I read this story, uh, certainly, uh, and the early Genesis narratives more generally, at least um, as. Uh, kind of establishing a basic theological framework for God's relationship with the world and the relationships of the constituent parts to each other. I would agree with that. Um, I, I, I think the stories are intended to illustrate certain meanings. So as we know that scriptures are not record of histories or climate for believers, the scriptures are you know, understood as God responds to you know, people's search and need for for meaning. Uh, what I what what I find um, interesting about the story of Noah and and flood, uh, what make it so remarkable, is that it includes the search for deeper meaning. This is not just about punishment. This is also about God love, and um, and how people were given second chance to to repent. Right. So that deeper level of meaning uh, that reflect, you know, people, uh, people, uh, you know, search in, in, in life. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think Tafi illustrate that, that point uh, very eloquently. Mm. Thank you. 
I, I just will take a break in just a second. I just wanted to mention something from the Christian tradition, which um, I really don't have the ability to comment on eloquently. But th- there, there is an allusion in the letter of First Peter to the flood, and uh, as a metaphor symbol for baptism, mm-hmm. um, is First Peter yeah. chapter three, verse verse twenty to twenty one. First, the allusion to eight persons saved through water, and then verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's at least one way that the Christian tradition already in the New Testament alludes to that. I think think we'll take a break. Is this a good spot? Okay. All right. So, uh, friends, we will be right back on Mining Scripture. This is your golden opportunity to review and rate with as many stars as you can muster uh, mining scripture and we'll be back in a moment welcome back to mining scripture i am gabriel Said reynolds and i'm speaking with my colleagues and friends Munim Suri and Svi Novik about Noah in the Bible and the Quran. We've been speaking about, well, all sorts of things. <laughs> I keep moving from one topic to another. Um, but there is one episode of the Quran I think that we are morally compelled to address because it's such a, a stark contrast between the biblical narrative. And that appears in Quran chapter 11 or Surah 11, Surah Hud, which. Um, involves a son of Noah. Now, sometimes in scholarship, this is called Noah's lost son. Sometimes people refer to it as Noah's fourth son. Mm-hmm. Although the Quran doesn't, correct me if I get something wrong here, Munim, but doesn't speak about three other sons. No, yeah. So it's a little ambiguous. But anyway, in Quran um, 1142, we read, And so it sailed with them amidst waves like hills, And Noah called to his son, who had kept away, O my son, embark with us, and do not be with the disbelievers. He said, I will take refuge on a mountain. It will protect me from the water. He said, that is Noah now, there is no protection from God's decree today, except for him on whom he has mercy. And the waves surged between them, and he was among the drowned. That is, Noah's son was among the drowned. So why don't we just start there? What is the importance um, of this episode of Noah's lost son, uh, Munim, to the Quran? Yeah, um, you're right that this is very interesting uh, episode because uh, Noah's disbelieving son is not found in the Bible. Right? So the Bible mentioned about those who were safe on the ark, including himself, his wife, his son, and... Um, his, son His wife, son's wife. Right. Yes. So, uh, what I found interesting here is that um, the Quran does mention uh, Noah's wife as unbelievers, although it is his son who receives the that's most That's an allusion attention. to Surah 66, you mean, yes. in that other passage. Right. Yeah. No, that's uh, chapter 66, what's what I mean. Um, of course, one, one of the difficulties, you know, posed. Uh, to many exeget is the identity of this lost son. Who is this lost son? Um, because um, th- there is a, a reference to this in the hadith 
that his lost son was Canaan. Um, although, as we know from the Bible, that Canaan was not Noah's son, but rather his grandson. Right? Exactly. He is the son of his uh, one of his uh, one of his son um, Ham. Is Ham. that yeah, Ham. the person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but th- there is, you know. Um, interesting discussion among uh, Muslim exegetes on this issue um, on, on the identity of Noah Lawson, um, whether he is Noah's biological son or not. Although the majority of Muslim exegetes argue that uh, that Canaan was, um, was Noah's biological son. Um, some argue that um, he was not, but rather um, he was the fruit of his wife relationship with another man, um, and therefore the Quranic phrase "wanada uh, ibnahu," as, as we find that in the Quran, uh, Noah called his son. Mm-hmm. According to some exegetes, this phrase can be read as "wanada ibnaha," so referring to the son of his wife, yeah, Ibnaha being son. her son. Right, yeah. right. Meaning mm-hmm. the son of 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 his wife, rather than, um, um, but but I I think the major issue, as you yourself uh, discuss in your work, perhaps the Quran uh, reflect a, a larger uh, uh, issue here, which is about um, about faith of a family. Right, um, as we know that the Quran seems to be concerned with. Um, with uh, you know uh, uh, the attitude of believers toward unbelieving members of their family, so we find the story of uh, of Abraham uh, in which there was cons- you know um, a tension between him and and his father. So the Quran seemed to reflect this major concerns um, of faith of uh, families. And there seems to be a moment where Noah, and, and this is not sure. prominent, I think, elsewhere in the Quran, but correct me if I get this wrong, where Noah, depending on how you read verses 45 and 46, mm-hmm. seems to complain to God or mm-hmm. at least lament the death of his son to God. Right. Oh, my Lord, my son is of my family. And then verse 46, God replies, Oh, Noah, he is not of your family. It is an unrighteous deed. Mm-hmm. So there's some tension there between almost pathos, the human experience, emotion of Noah, maybe, and right. the divine decree. Yeah, I mean, naturally, <laughs> Noah would believe that you know his son is part of his family, mm-hmm. right? But God here in this passage declared that he wasn't. Um, he was uh, of evil conduct, right? So what I find interesting here is that the criteria for inclusion in the family is not genealogical connection, but rather good conduct and belief. Uh, in this passage in particular, that God not only um, you know, tell Noah that his son was evil conduct, but also warn him right, for his questioning a God plan. So, so the Quran says that do not ask me about something you know nothing about. So this is quite interesting because by 
pleading to God in that way, Noah is transgressing the boundaries between the divine and the human. Human beings should not ask God's plan. God knows and people know nothing about. So um, yeah, this this is uh, you know this is this is this is quite interesting. You know, in the way uh, God asked Noah not to question His plan, and in fact, Noah himself um, asked for forgiveness on the account of his questioning God's plan. Um, you know, in, in other passages of the Quran. Yeah, I just add it is. I mean, it is striking how yeah how how this passage then uh, kind of contrasts. Uh, the bonds of belief versus the bonds of family. I mean, for me, it's evocative of uh, of this famous uh, statement by Jesus in the in the New Testament in, in the Gospel of Luke: "Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple." Uh, so that, in principle, at least, uh, there uh, there's a tension between uh, faith. And family, mm-hmm. uh, Kierkegaard kind of famously cites that passage from Luke and of Genesis 22, and the story of the uh, of uh, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac mm. uh, out of God's command. And so, uh, yeah, there's a kind of a, a common a common thread of recognition of a possible tension between these two, I guess, foundations of identity. That's very interesting. Yeah, elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels, I think I, I'm working from memory, so I won't have the passage or the precise reference. But uh, Jesus speaks about sowing division between members of the family, hmm. mother-in-law mm-hmm. against daughter-in-law, and right. um, right. with a number of different relations. Um, yeah, so maybe that is a, a common thread. Something else which m- m- may be common is just that in the Quran, maybe there's a little bit of tension around the moral status of Noah as an exemplar, at least in this one case of questioning God. Uh, there's a maybe a more profound case in Genesis 9, and I'd, I think we don't have time to get into it in, in detail because it brings up a whole host of issues that maybe we should address in another um, episode. But uh, at the end of Genesis 9, Noah plants a garden, gets drunk, and... Um, well, I should probably let you take it from here, Svi. Um, he, he eventually curses the son of his son. He curses Canaan, Ham's son. Um, so I don't know if we want to get into it in detail or how to handle it since time is short. But I, I did want to ask about Noah's status as, as a moral exemplar, both in the Quran and then in light of this Genesis 9 episode in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so here, right, he does right becoming uh, becoming the, the first thing Noah does right after the after the flood, um, right. He's described in the in the Bible as a man of the earth, uh, Isha Adama, and then he plants a vineyard, becomes drunk, becomes naked, uh, and then uh, something happens, uh, uh, or his 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 son uh, Ham uh, sees him naked, uh, and. Um, that may be the extent of it. Um, maybe the Bible is alluding to some some further crime, um, but uh, in any case, uh, this contrasts with the behavior of the other two sons, Shem and Japheth, or Shem and Japheth, uh, who cover their father's nakedness with their garment. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated story, and right, uh, 
it, it, it ends with this curse of Ham son Canaan, Canaan, who is the uh, anonymous ancestor of the Canaanites. Uh, and so to some extent, this story is anticipating the dispossession of Canaan by the Israelites, who are descendants of Shem. Uh, that's Semite. Uh, comes from shame, um, so uh, yeah, a lot of complicated stuff there. But uh, but in terms of the the immediate question of uh, uh, of Noah as moral exemplar, right? P- perhaps even this very uh, this very kind of characterization of him as a, a person of the soil is 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 already um, clouding, I guess, the portrait of Noah as righteous in the sense that. Uh, uh, he is returning to the uh, to the soil that had been uh, that had been cursed, um, but in any case, certainly the the drunkenness and the nakedness uh, suggest that um, suggest that there's a, a complicated picture here. Um, I mean, it, it's uh, it, in, in the Jewish tradition in the Jewish reception of the story. Um, um, it, there, there is a general tendency to uh, to contrast Noah to Abraham, right? So the story of Abraham immediately follows the story of Noah. Uh, and, uh, and so the, there, there is this general tendency to, uh, to find Noah a, a kind of um, a complex exemplar or an exemplar who doesn't quite measure up to, uh, to Abraham. Um, right? Abraham is someone who goes out and makes believers, uh, that is to say, not making believe, but he makes people into believers uh, in, in contrast with Noah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that the Jewish tradition there is picking I up see. on the way in which the biblical text on its plain sense uh, paints something of a, of a little bit of a complicated portrait of Noah. I should mention also that this story of, of this kind of uh, sad aftermath of the destruction of the world is kind of directly related to a kind of sequence that you find later in Genesis where the city of Sodom uh, and neighboring cities are destroyed. And then following that, you also have a case of the the survivor, in that case, Lot, um, becoming drunk uh, and uh, in in that case ends up drunkenly uh, sleeping with his daughters, uh, but also a kind of nakedness there. Uh, And so Noah, in this sense, kind of becomes paired with Lot uh, Abraham's nephew as a sort of um, uh, um, well, interesting figure from a literary perspective and from a psychological perspective, someone who isn't perfect, uh, right. who is righteous uh, and does good uh, and is worthy of God's attention but isn't in fact perfect. I, I think this is a really important point of tension between at least standard Islamic readings of mm-hmm. the Quran and the biblical narratives. And Munim, you can elaborate on this probably, but my understanding is that this the standard reading is prophets are impeccable, sinless, infallible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they may have slight slips. They may do things before they were called to prophethood, but basically they're all exemplars. And it's, it's shocking then to look at biblical narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but of course, from the Jewish and Christian perspective, they're not all exemplars. They did do bad things that were not meant to imitate. And anyway, do you have thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, the, the Quran doesn't mention the stories of Noah being drunk or naked. Mm-hmm. So perhaps such episode would you know, discredit his personality. As a moral exemplar, Noah actually occupied very specific status in the Quran. 
So normally when the Quran mentions you know, biblical prophets, Noah is often mentioned first among those prophets in chronological list. So the Quran often you know, refers to Noah as a godly messenger whose moral examples is highlight. Perhaps that is the reason why you know, his story about his his being drunk or or uh, neck is not is not mentioned at all in the Muslim scripture. Um, I, I agree that perhaps this is one one examples in which the Bible and the Quran you know differ in terms of how uh, characters are uh, presented in both scriptures. Mm-hmm. So in the though, Quran, though even in the Quran, yeah. right, I mean even in the Quran, in the passage that you mentioned, Munim, mm-hmm. uh, it is willing to entertain the idea of God rebuking Noah. Uh, right. Right, so there is I mean, something of a complexity. Th- 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 yeah, I agree. There's a there's complex thing um, there. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and 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 the behavior of characters in the Quran is seen as model for good conducts mm-hmm. instead of example of redemption as it is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I guess that's my understanding. I think that's a very good way of putting it. I, I'm going to move on to another element sure. just because time time is short and. It's another big topic. It's, it's such a rich uh, topic for conversation, or, or Noah is such a rich subject for conversation. Um, at the beginning of Genesis 9, and it really begins at the end of Genesis 8, something else transpires before the story we were just speaking about, about the vineyard or the, yeah, the planting of, of vines. Um, which brings us back to a point that Sfi made mm-hmm. earlier about the Noah account in Genesis being something like a second creation story. Uh, I, maybe I didn't get the right term there. But it, it, we have um, a uh, the establishment of what's usually described as a covenant. Um, I think the words is explicitly there in Genesis 9. Is that right, mm-hmm. uh, Sfi? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, so, uh, which involves responsibilities on both sides. God promises not to um, destroy the world. Well, at the end of Genesis 8, he won't destroy the world. In Genesis 9, he won't destroy the world by a flood. But there's also certain rules that he establishes. So, maybe, Svi, we'll start with you. Uh, what is the importance of this covenant passage uh, in, in Genesis 9? Right, so this is right. So this is very explicitly covenantal. Right, uh, in 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 Genesis nine, you have this language of covenant. As for me, God says, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every every living creature that is with you. Uh, and so here we have really have a first uh, a first instance of uh, of covenant. And um, in the uh, in in the Bible itself, and this is kind of brought out uh, further in. Uh, in various strands of Jewish interpretation, uh, there are a multiplicity of covenants um, that, uh, in one way or another, relate to each other. You have, of course, m- most most centrally in the in the in the Jewish tradition, in the mainstream Jewish tradition, the covenant uh, between God and Israel at Sinai, uh, also a covenant between God and David um, and his descendants. Um, but this um, this is uh, a kind of a fundamental paradigm setter for, uh, um, for God's relationship with human beings, and as you say, a mutual covenant where um, God makes certain commitments and um, but also makes certain demands of human beings. Uh, here, interestingly, the covenant isn't with 
um, Noah specifically, or even with Noah's descendants specifically, uh, but with um, all living things as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. And, or, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, uh, as many as came out of the ark. Uh, and uh, so in the, in, the, in the Jewish tradition, uh there there and and this is uh a kind of a, an understanding that you find echoes of also in uh the new testament uh what we have here is a, a kind of fundamental set of um obligations or demands that are placed upon human beings first and foremost in the context of this covenant um, and that sets the terms for God's relationship with the world in general, um, and then set on, above that or on top of that or uh, alongside that is the Sinai Covenant uh, with its uh, much uh, more elaborated and detailed uh, set of covenantal obligations that apply specifically to Israel. So in the Jewish tradition, one will speak of the Sheva Mitzvot B'nei Noach, the seven Noahide commandments. Um Commandment, uh, uh, first and foremost, a prohibition against shedding blood, a prohibition against murder, um, and then alongside that is the Sinai Covenant that is specific to Israel that entails right. a much larger set of commandments. Right. I maybe it's a silly story, but I can't help but interject. When uh, one time when I was in Jerusalem, I uh, was handed out like a tract that I'm used to seeing from sort of. Protestants, evangelical Protestants, but it was like that. It was in English. Mm. And uh, the the gentleman asked if I was a Jew. I said, no. He gave me this tract and he said, we had a conversation. But the upshot of it all was his, this phrase that was very memorable. He said, keep the seven, go to heaven. Mm. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> Which was an allusion uh, to the seven, the seven Noah, Noahide commandments. The seven Noahide commandments, uh-huh. right. They're not, uh, it, it takes some, it takes some exegesis. Uh, it takes a, uh, quite a bit of a close reading and imaginative reading to get all seven of the traditional uh, Noahide commandments. Uh, there's a murder against the prohibition of murder, theft, uh, cursing God, um, idolatry or worship of foreign gods and, um, um, and um, sexual immorality, uh, establishment of courts. Uh, but what, what, what we might call uh, natural law, I suppose, right. um, as opposed to uh, revealed law. But yes, yes, that's uh, <laughs> I have heard of those kind of, uh, as it were, some efforts. Just, just mentioned briefly, the notion of covenant is in the Quran as well. We yeah. have we have right. two words for covenant, and but. Not particularly in connection with Noah, I don't think. No, there is there is a passage in the Quran. Uh, uh, you know, the Quran says that um, God uh, took covenant with Noah and other prophets. Right? Mm. There is there is explicit you know min- mention about uh, Noah covenant in in the Quran, and and the Quranic uh, notion of covenant implies only obeying the one and only God. That the, the emphasis uh, of 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 covenant in, in the Quran. Um, when, when, when the Quran says that God took covenant with Noah and other prophets, uh, that they would obey God and you know um, follow you know His ways as well as um, guide people on 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 His way. So perhaps this also connected to uh, to the story of Noah in the sense that uh, that the story itself is intended to illustrate. Uh, 
uh, how God cautioned the consequence of unfaithfulness. Mm. So the, the the emphasis of covenant in the Quran, it seemed to me, I don't know if you have a different opinion, uh, it seemed to emphasize how important it is to obey God to guide people. So this is perhaps, you know, also reflect to uh, what, what uh, Tavi just mentioned about the obligation uh, to guide people on the divine way. Mm. Well, maybe as a as a final topic for us to address, sure. uh, and it's not good or nice to end things on a down downer. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I did want to at least bring up the specter of divine vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if either of you have seen the movie made about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago uh, about Noah. Which This is the Russell Crowe one, right? Exactly, the <laughs> Russell Crowe one. Oh, yes. Yeah, which uh-huh. <laughs> is in part about the ecological disasters of brought upon by humankind. And there's a lots of stuff going on. Anyway, I, my family really likes the movie. It's a pretty, <laughs> but it's not a faithful depiction of the biblical story, that's for sure. Um, anyway, what I'm, what, what I wanted to get at is, I mean, in that movie, you get a sense of the human, the destruction of human lives in Mm -hmm. the flood, because you see them, you know, the the bad guys being carried away. Uh, but of course, you know, the Noah story is, it's for children is cute because the animals get on the ark. Uh, but it's also terrible if you mm-hmm. think about it, divine yeah. destruction and the the threat of vengeance. And I think that's common to Quran and Bible, whether or not the Quran sees it as a universal flood, yeah. there's still d- divine vengeance. Um, so what should we say about that? I mean, uh, we tend to emphasize in theological readings divine mercy, but divine vengeance seems to be reality as well. Hmm. Uh, well, I'd certainly say right. I mean, in terms of the biblical narrative, right, the, the uh, uh, I mean, course it does uh the 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 evildoers are more or less anonymous of course and then uh, and then all focus lies on the righteous who are who are saved uh and right, that that is uh i guess in part what enables um what is after all the story of the destruction of the entire world to become a children's story um but for me actually what was it was it was striking to uh to hear those Quran verses and the way in which uh, they kind of, uh, and the attentiveness to that uh, kind of conversation between Noah and his son who uh, who remains outside of the ark, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of creates a certain sort of sympathy uh, with, um, with that son uh, and gives us, I mean, he still doesn't have a name, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, but... Uh, we get, we have something then uh, that emerges out of this anonymous mass um, in the in the Bible, and so that's it is striking in that respect. I don't know that the um, um, that the biblical narrative goes out of its way to uh, kind of convey a sense of the uh, of the scale of the destruction. Um, Or to kind of enter into, as it were, in, into the heads of uh, of these survivors, uh, kind of having witnessed uh, the uh, the destruction of everything that they know. It would be I'd be hard pressed to identify um, a verse or an aspect of the biblical telling that um, 
that dwells on that. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Nua was asked to build Ark is in order to save people, right? So the Ark can be interpreted as, um, as divine mercy. So I would like mm-hmm. to emphasize this point uh, because the vengefulness of God and his mercy should not be separated, although it can be distinguished, mm-hmm. but, but they can go together. Beautiful, yes. The Ark in, in Christian tradition becomes a symbol for the church itself, um, the church which saves. And I, I like how you see in yeah. the Quranic version as the manifestation of divine mercy. Right. I, I, think, I think we're at the end of our time. Sfi and Munim, thank you so much for thank being you. Um, thank you yeah for being with me and um, for this conversation friends thank you for joining us and be sure to be with us for the next episode of Mining Scripture where divine word and human reason meet <laughs>